Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to another exciting episode of the Two Half Squads. I'm Jeff. I'm Dave. And we have three very, very, very important guests with us. And we're very happy to have Dan Dolan. Natter, what's your, how's your last name spell, uh, pronounced, Natter? Alfara. Alfara. Seems easy enough. And Carl Noguera, glad you guys could join us. Glad nice to be here. So, uh, Natter was about to tell us a, a story, an interesting story. How things... Yeah, I think uh, this was 2013, and uh, Dan contacted me saying, hey, do you still make maps uh, for ASL? Because I had done some very long time ago, before MMP uh, took over uh, with Hasbro. Um, so he knew about from that, and he had an 8.5 by 11 hand-drawn uh, map of uh, what he thought Denant uh, looked like, and said, can you turn this into something I can I can do play tests with. And um, of course the answer to that was sure, I can do that. Um, but in the course of doing that, of course, with a background in architecture, I was uh, really, I, I couldn't do it just from his drawing and I had to actually look at, okay, what does Donat look like today? <laughs> how, how is it laid out today? What did it look like mm -hmm. in 1940? You know, what kind of information can I get from 1940? I get a lot of that. Um, and, and so it, it, changed quite a bit from turn his drawing into a map to create a drawing of Dinant. And uh, so I worked up something that was suitable for playtesting. And then it was a way to the races with, uh, with Dan and then uh, later with Carl on the campaign game using that playtest map. And then um, the curveball that, that sort of came later was uh, when MMP got involved um, they wanted us as part of the design package to provide the finished map artwork, which is not normally how they do things. Um, and so uh, at that point, the map went through a really significant um, upgrade from what was suitable for playtesting to something that would be, you know, visually appealing for players and, you know, as historically accurate as I could make it right down to exactly, you know, what the roof eaves looked like on individual buildings. And so how did that you, was, did you have a time machine or did you go to France or uh, anything like that? No, I wish, oh. I wish I could have gone, uh, Belgium actually, but um, yeah, the, um, the, the starting point of course is, is modern day and you have uh, Google street view and things like that, that you can use, which, you can get a pretty good sense of whether I'm looking at a really modern building or a really old building just from that. But then there are other sources of information, whether they be period photographs, uh, photographs during the occupation, uh, literally postcards from the 20s and 30s uh, before the war. Uh, all these communities had their, you know, tourism boards, if you will, and they would make postcards of their church or their bridge or their this or their that. And uh, you find a lot of information. Say again, Dan? Pictures of plazas and things like that. To yeah, even exactly. Find out open so ground and, you know. The, the, the fortress and the cathedral, for example, are prominently uh, in a lot of photographs uh, yeah. from older older times. But again, looking in the background of those photos, you can see what the buildings look like. Right. Uh, other buildings, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just layering all that information on top of each other until you pin down that, you know, at, at 1940, this is what all that, you know, must have looked like. Yeah, well, you came up with the road tunnel. That, that was like amazing. I didn't even—you couldn't even see that except for that little one picture you took. 
Go up yeah, I remember you. actually when I was um, doing a, a bunch of my research to to put the map together, um, I was looking at what I could see in plan view, you know, straight top down. And I was thinking, well, gosh, it's really weird that they have this, you know, railroad line, but then there's a road on either side of it. But then, you know, and it wasn't until I was actually reading something uh, that described Rommel's actions. And lo and behold, there are these tunnels under the, not the tunnel he's talking about at the, you know, closer to the main bridge, but over by Bouvinet, uh, where the, um, those three passageways are under the, uh, under the railroad. And I remember almost shouting with joy that I had figured it out, you know, that I had I had guessed right on how that must lay out. And yeah. it's just part of the fun of doing the map is is making it accurate, right? That's the whole point of the HASL is that that I'm fighting on the same ground, looking at the same problem that they fought and that they faced. Um, no, you so that, you gotta have to be you, you gotta be told in here that you did a job on this map that was incredible. I mean, it was just watching the work over like eight years on this thing. Yeah, it, it took just, a long time, I mean, but it was you saw it. my first draft, people. You you understand what I had to go through. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, so, it was so, like yeah, I have a so copy of that. Equipped... I can post it. I'll send it to you. You can use it. That to, would be fantastic. To write up for this show. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's my first map. It is is like comical. It's like I drew it with like a choppy Marcus one afternoon on on the top of a wet book. Yeah, you're not an artist, Jimmy. You're an idea guy. <laughs> yes, no, no, exactly. It, it, and it, he had a great you know, idea. I mean, he, he did like a great job. He, he came back. It's not quite the way he tells it that like I just called him out of nowhere. I think I had seen him at, at Winter Offensive, but he had seen a copy of the map that I had taken from the map that I drew that I, that he used for the, the initial you know map. He came back with a map and showed terrain in ASL style within like 20 minutes. And it was just a blue map that I was using for the past eight and a half years off the table. You know, <laughs> just like, what the hell is this? You know, it was, it was one of the most incredible moments of ASL that I've had in my life when I saw that map. Like, now I just put it out. To this was just showing the roads and the hills. That's all it had on it. And it was like, I mean, wow. You know, it's going to be really interesting when he gets done doing it. You know, I was right. I mean, he just he did a spectacular job. And it's a pretty good size map. So, mm -hmm. right. is that the biggest yeah. map? Done? It's it's a big uh, map. It's, yeah. Yeah, for ASL, uh, that yeah, I think that's the biggest one I've done for ASL. I I looked at a project a long time ago that was three maps wide, but ended up scaling that one back anyway. Um, for other other game systems for other companies, I've done larger stuff, but yeah, that that was probably the biggest. Yeah, I was trying to find and see if I still had a copy of Dan's map, but I can't I can't locate it. So well, you have to... your background. Um, for those watching on YouTube, I put up a photo. Of, I've been looking at a lot of these and and rereading all the rules. Uh, and yeah, it's it's totally cool. I mean, this chapel thing and the forts mm -hmm. up on this hilltop. Mm -hmm. The wall around it, and what what a great great map! It's yeah. it's an incredible place to be and see. You know, when you see it, it was like I got there and I could walk around the city with this map. You know, I showed it to the innkeeper when we first came in. My wife asked, you know, the guy asked us what we were doing in Denant. 
And my wife just started laughing. I said, you tell them. You know, <laughs> I just said, I'm here to study, you know, Rommel's crossing. He goes, oh, my God. Running upstairs, he came back down with this giant book that his father, who had owned the restaurant before him, had made in 1940 when Rommel came through to town. You know, he stayed at the inn. Wow. You know, the same, and it was like, the guy was like, he had this book to his father, clippings. He had a picture, it was weird. It, it was, uh, the German photographer took it from the East Bank and he was taking a picture of this guy towing a, ra a raft, towing like a, a 37 millimeter gun or something. And in the background is the hotel with the, the name written on the roof and the shingles. They still had it. And the, on the steps of the hotel is this other guy taking a picture of the German. Oh. So they, they're like, they both had taken a picture at this exact moment of each other with this little raft in, in a way. You know, that was his father. And Rommel got wounded and they brought him back there to sew him up. So it was really an interesting place. I mean, the whole town is like, you know, things happened all over it, you know. It made it interesting to, to design, but it, it was a nightmare for now to have to do the map. And we kept coming to him every year. Oh, you think they could see half a hex further on that? You know? He just did everything now. It was incredible. How did you uh, guess some particular engagement to, for the, for the, uh, how did the idea come to you for this historical module? Dave Vitri. Oh. The ASL mailing list one night at like three o'clock in the morning. And we were talking about how I was, we were talking about French tanks and how that the tank commander would sit outside of the armor. I, I couldn't grasp this concept that you would have a tank and then sit outside of it, you know, on the back of the turret and all that, with your head sticking up, you know, just, and we were talking back and forth. And with the mailing list, you have to type the message and wait like five minutes for it to come back, you know, with the reply. It's like talking to a spaceship on the way to Mars. And we sort of, he kept saying, you know, this is, this is so he can see better. I said, see better than the bullet that takes his head off. You know, and, and we went, he says, you know, I said, he says, you know, he's insulting the French. You should try to design a scenario for the French. I said, I can design a scenario for the French. He says, okay, let me see the scenario. He, <laughs> so I said, all right. I went home and I'm like, tell me what I'm doing. So I started looking, one of the first things you read is, Rommel with the seventh panzer crossing the mirrors, you know, that broke through. All right. So I said, oh, let me look this up. And that, that started the whole thing. Wow. From, that, <laughs> from that came to none. You know, I just met these people along the way that were like spectacular at what they did. You know, Carl was freaking put the campaign game together and tightened the rules up to the point where like they became my Two and a half pages became like the ASL rules for Donat, you see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Paul yeah, he, did he, did a, he did a great job turning real engineering, you know, combat engineering, the bridging operation into ASL, which is a, yeah. quite an achievement. Yeah. yeah. And, and reading those rules again in preparation, they, it didn't seem all that complicated to me. It, it, uh, the whole, the it's whole... a measure of his skill. <laughs> and it's not that complicated. That's the thing that's like, yeah. The beauty of it, it's 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 complex, but it's not complicated. 
Well, the idea was to try to take existing rules and then modify them instead of doing something whole cloth new. Uh, you know, you get something whole cloth new, you got to learn all five paragraphs or 10 paragraphs or whatever it is. But if you're saying, okay, how do these guys get the stuff to the riverbed? Well, they haul it there. Okay, so portage points, now nah, it's too big for portage points. So what else we got in the system that pushes things? Ah, pushing guns. There we go. We'll just kind of work off of that. All right, now how about putting a bridge together or a ferry for crying out loud? When, when has that ever gotten done? Hmm. Right. Carrying things to the... Wait a minute, we can reverse engineer it. Clearance. Except this time we're not clearing, we're adding things on. All right, yeah, we'll use clearance. There we go. And so by using rules that already exist and just modifying them, it takes something that could be real, real complex and hopefully anyway, it makes it a little easier. Yeah, I don't know if it's always successful because I always get emails. God, this is so fucking complicated. No, no, guys, yeah, it's not that bad, really. It's, it's just like, you know how to do clearance, don't you? What? <coughs> no. <laughs> then you got to work with that. But uh, as long as you use using existing rules and modifying them, I think it makes complex ideas easier. And, and you see a lot of that in the system. A lot of people's ideas use that, you know. It's, just, it's certainly not the first time it's been done. It's just the first time it's been applied to this, I guess. I think it's really important uh, to understand the, the value of being able to, again, coming back to it from a military history perspective, huge aspects of warfare that we study in our scenarios doesn't happen unless people learn to cross obstacles like that river. And so giving the players the opportunity to do that and understand the difficulty, particularly of doing it under fire, I think is a great, um, a real great feature of this game. And it couldn't have happened without, without Carl's rules. Yeah, um, no, it was part I get is watching people play with their assault engineers. Sorry, Danny, but, uh, but assault engineers, what you usually do with assault engineers up to the front, you know, and this here, it's like, oh, you go to the front with them, you can roll across. Nobody's coming across on a bridge, though, because there's nobody to build the bridge now because all your assault engineers are up front, you know. So, you gotta that's part of the whole campaign part of it, anyway, is figuring out how many stay behind to build the bridges and the ferries and how many go forward to man the flamethrowers and the DCs. And if you get the calculation wrong it could be could be an issue yeah it did strike me that they're the assault engineers doing the work in the back you know um and then it, because the clearance you know you gotta roll like what less than two on two dice but i haven't played it yet to see how quickly i could build a bridge but uh but you guys are saying it it happens right oh yeah 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 it just happens you you can do it you have to concentrate on it you have to you have to plan your route for the bridge you get down to the river there's a lot of traffic <laughs> and, then, and then the bridge goes straight across right or you pick a hex yeah row yeah, you can show it here yeah down <laughs> the hex train not a thing you pick the thing up and you carry it to the where it is water and you drop it <laughs> basically what you do and then you you know these guys attach it and off you go you know but it's uh it's getting it down there that makes it interesting because you got guys trying to shoot it. You know, it's pretty easy to kill a truck. Yes. <laughs> it's like, you know, you don't really want it to be seen by anything. And it's a big ass target. Yeah, especially carrying like a movie screen around on the back of it. You know? Yes. And then um, getting the pulley across. Now that you had to have a, one guy on both sides. To right, set right, up yeah. right. You want to tell us how that kind of works? And sure. Um, the way that works basically is it was a two-part uh, project. One, you have to get somebody on both sides, as you were saying. They have to both be assault engineers. 
And you also need to have constructed ferry. So first you build the ferry, and then you got to say to yourself, all right, uh, how are things going? Am I so desperate that I don't care about the pull in? I'm just going to, you know, land, land these guys on the ferry, take them off and put them over there. Or do I want the speed that the, you know, the pulley is going to give me over time? Am I willing to put the time in right now to gain on the back end to make this thing go back and forth faster? And that's why you do the pulleys. And so, you know, that's one, the first decision. Then the next decision point is, okay, how am I going to go about this? Because I need this to be constructed on both sides of the river. And again, it goes down a hex drain. All this goes down a hex drain. There's no, uh, thank God, alternate grains, bridges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would have been more than I ever would have wanted to do. But uh, yeah, so um, basically that's how the pulley works. It did um, something for dispatch. It's called decoding the knot, which actually addresses all the different engineering rules and the rationale behind it. And uh, got it. You know, well prepared here. Yeah, I wonder what issue that was. Yeah. It was a recent one. I can tell you that. Forty nine <laughs> um, or something. Might have been. Might have been. You know, it's again as uh, I believe it was either Jeff or Dave. I think it was Dave was saying. You know, it's really not that complex. You know, people hear, oh my God, I'm building pontoon bridges. Oh geez, what's got rules for socket wrenches? Yeah, no, it's, it's not that bad. <laughs> you know, it's it's fairly uh, fairly straightforward actually. But yeah, the IFT is... socket wrenches. <laughs> oh, somebody had to bring it up. You know, <laughs> an IFT socket wrench man myself. Sorry, keep that IFT stuff out of here. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, the trick to it isn't really so much the rules as coordinating everything. And that's actually been one of the more rewarding things with the CG is that I get emails from people who are playing the CG. And I'll get an email from the French player. And I'll get an email from the German player. And they're both saying the same thing. How the hell am I supposed to win this? This thing looks so horribly unbalanced. And I sit back and smile and say, oh, good. They're both complaining. This is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't have asked for a better result. Yeah. <laughs> but both sides have a lot of considerations. They really do. And that's one of them is... is do I want to trade speed for time? I can get this across on a ferry right now, but I can get three times. I actually do that calculus in the article. Over the course of the campaign, I can get three times as much across if I take the time now to build the pulley. But how do I feel about building that pulley? Are both guys safe? Am I actually going to get this complete? Or am I just going to waste three turns that I could send somebody across on the ferry? Or yeah. do I have this under control? And will I therefore benefit from it down the road? It's uh, it's not your average CG in that usually the defender has to plan meticulously for the setup. Uh, in most CGs I've played, and I've played quite a few of them, uh, the attacker is kind of more an opportunistic player role. You know, with this you actually have to plan both sides pretty pretty carefully. So you have to plan the attacker just as carefully as you would the defender, and that's in my experience anyway fairly rare. Yeah, historically, the Germans didn't plan the first crossing, which was further up river, uh, and they got their their nose bloodied. And Dinant was the the second try. Um, and part of you know the, we've just had our local ASL tournament, and there was a group playing Dinant, and they were doing day one, and it was bloody for the Germans. Uh, a lot of a lot of boats getting sunk, a lot of guys getting shot up. And I asked the question, I said, did anybody, you know, start lighting buildings on fire? And the reason I asked that question is not because that's some great ASL. Thing. That's exactly what Rommel did. He needed the smoke to cover the operation to build the pulley exactly as Carl described. And wow. because they didn't have it deliverable by 
indirect fire, the option was start lighting buildings on fire to create a smokescreen. And when when you see players facing the exact same historical problems that the actual people did, you know that the product has delivered the experience you were after. And I think that Carl and Dan did that in spades. Excellent. Yeah. It's a nice background you got there. Yeah, isn't it though? <laughs> it does. It shows you the tower here too. Yeah. Um, the steeple mm -hmm. with the red cross going up to be the higher steeple. Yeah. Just excellent. It's a it's a it's a pretty awe inspiring place when you stand down there and look up at it. You know, it's like my wife to have a a stairway that goes up the side, but it's it's the most rickety thing you've ever seen. Mm. It's like they they have a sign at the bottom in like four languages: don't lean on the railing. <laughs> the railing will break. You will fall to your death. Don't lean on the railing. Wow. You have to go up this, these stairs that are literally about that wide. You know, you, you don't stand like broad-shouldered across it. You're sort of slithering along it, either front end or front back. But it's like you go up this side of this hill and you, you got to try to like turn. And it's like the people that have like a fear of upper levels. Mm -hmm. It's a scary place, you know. <laughs> like, I you can actually thinking. see you can see that on the map uh, behind yeah. you there. They, in the, if on the game map, it's there in the uh, where the fortress is in the lower right hand side. You can see ah. where the path crosses the cliffside. That's that stairway that he's talking about behind what? the church there. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, where it touches the building. Is that TT forty four? Yeah. So TT forty four is where it starts, and then it ends yeah. up at the fortress up at the top. Wow. Oh yeah, that's what the the red BV forty four is the terminal spot. The, there. the not the red stuff below that. In UU, what is that? UU forty three, UU forty four. Oh yeah, UU forty four. Yeah, UU forty. Yeah, you can see where the path starts and where oh, yeah, where it yeah. zigzags up is where it actually what Dan's talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yeah. What else is about is interesting about this fantastic game? Oh well, it's you know it, it's it's a product of um, a lot of people doing really good work on it. I mean, every step along the way, from when I handed over the scrap of paper, um, the matter, and it just took off from there. You know, I mean, without Matter's Map, this would have never been doable. You know, I mean, I showed it to Brian Yaus for six years down at Winter Offensive. And they just walked past me every year. And I was out in the hallway. They wouldn't even let me play it in the room. It was, it, the map was so hideous. But, you know, you kept plugging away. Trying. And one day, an adder came by and he said, you know, oh, if you ever want me to draw a map, I, I like to draw maps. I, I've done a couple, you know. I said, oh, yeah, see, you know. And for five years, I didn't even think of it, you know. Then he saw me again that I had played it down there. I think it was in like 2000 and well, now when did we first start together? 2010, somewhere out there? So, I think that the email that I have uh, was 2013. 2013, okay. So yeah. it was, you know, we started at that point. I, I asked him, you know, you still do maps? <laughs> and he said, oh yeah. I, I don't think he knew what he was getting into at that point. <laughs> it's like, oh, we were talking at nights on the phone about the way the river curved, you know, really you can see, you know, and drawing those, uh, the three 
railroad bridge tunnels that go through the embankment. Uh, it's just like, you know, drawing them and getting the lines of sight down to play the scenario from there. It's like, it's, it's interesting. It was, it was a trip watching that do the map. Like he do these buildings and like he come back, the roof of the building would be changed. You know, you'd look at it like it, it was just like, and then you'd look at an aerial photograph and the shingles were the same way. You know, it was weird. It was, it was like, it was strange seeing it just become alive. You know, and it was- the, the, Yeah, the goal there, of course, is that, that if you create the terrain correctly, then it'll mirror the historical uh, yeah. event. You know, the, the, the same pieces of terrain will be important. Um, yeah. And that's what you want to give the player. You want to give that player that same sense where he and Rommel could conceivably sit there and go, yeah, if I had just taken that building the day before, it would have made all the difference. You, you want the player to have that experience. You want them to be reading something and go, you know, I, I had that same that same feeling when I tried to cross. That, that's that's success. Yeah, it was. God, how about that Rommel guy? Huh? Was that worth putting him in? Yeah, now that, that really struck me too. Is you, there's an individual counter for Rommel, and Dan, you said he did get wounded historically. I'm yeah, gonna... he did on the yeah. second day uh, when they, they he sent uh, von Bismarck and a group of guys from the recon platoon up through the southern uh, entranceway, and they got through to Anhe, the next town over where the French had a regimental headquarters set up. And he ran into this and he stopped outside in town and he radioed back, you know, we're delayed at Anheg. And in German, it's Gefischgefuten or Gefischgefaten, you know, and it's, they transcribed it and told Rommel that von Bismarck was surrounded at Anheg. So Rommel grabbed everything he had on the beachhead and said, let's go to Anhank. We got to rescue Von Bismarck. And he came screaming down the road with like 13 tanks. And he was in it. He jumped into a Panzer three. And as he came over the crest of the hill, looking down into Anhank, he got hit by an anti-tank run. And his driver drove off the road. And Rommel split his face open. So he hit his head on the, the ring of the coupler and he came back to the hotel that I stayed at, the Hotel Bovignon. And it was like the, he gave the, the innkeeper, he signed a letter telling German troops to leave this guy alone. He was a good you know, friend to the German people for taking care of Rommel that night when he came back. They kept him there, he sewed his face up and he spent the night in this hotel. And the next morning, the guy had breakfast laid out for him and you know, he was happy, he did, did German thing and left, you know? So he gave the guy a letter and it was, it was interesting. This guy was like, so he was a one man in. He did everything at the end. He cooked the food, he served the food, he made the beds, he did everything he was by himself did six beds and you know and he was renovating the dining room it's like but i showed him the map of the place and he took it down to the town council meeting wow. that night and showed it to the mayor and the people like look at these people are doing you know they're playing this game and, and you know, it was he said you know when the thing got done we should come back over there and you know they would like have like a day if anybody wants to go over there 
make the Donat Day. You know, I was thinking of going over to one of these years on the, you know those two days and spend the weekend there or whatever. You know, That'd be cool. Would be That'd very be great. Cool. Now, with with Rommel being a, has, have you guys played games in him where he gets killed? Oh yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's a bummer. <laughs> it, it really sucks when Rommel gets killed because you treat him as a as a kind of like as a commissar, right? Uh, no, Rommel can he can bolster the morale of people two hexes away. Yeah, he's got the range thing. He helps them aid uh, building with. Laying the ferries down with the pulleys, Rommel gives them a pat on the butt and says, "Okay, we'll get pulley done." You know, and it's like he's all over the place. But you got to try to keep him away from the enemy. Try to kill him because you lose ELR and you, 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 your people go to hell. You know, yeah, you, you lose did that. Too. Yeah. Carl did that. Oh yeah, he co he cost points. Huh? Was that was that a hard decision to put him in the game? Because that is pretty unusual no. for ASL. No, no, he was a uh, project manager with uh, combat boots, really, was what he was. He, he was up. the impetus that kept things going. Yeah. He got there. When he got there, first arrived on the scene, the Germans had tried to cross the river before, and they had been bloodily repulsed. They were just like laying in the buildings back on the other side of the river, you know, shooting across every now and then with a rifle held up over their heads. Uh, and he said, what's going on here? The guy, the colonel said, "Oh, we, you know, we got to, we got to have to get something down here. We need smoke." And he says, "What? What are those sixty men doing across the river there?" You know, he says, "Well, they're in those buildings. They're hanging on by the teeth." He says, "Well, have them set the buildings on fire. That'll give us smoke." So the guy says, "Where where will they go if they set their buildings on fire? You just climb the cliffs and get up there. They're killing us from up there." So he he went across in one of the first boats that crossed the river. And he spent the afternoon like working on the far side of the river, getting things moving off of the beachhead, I guess you could call it. Yeah. He, he right. had a pretty full day. He actually got strafed by a friendly aircraft almost as soon as he arrived with his uh, chief adjutant. So he was almost killed by a German plane when he first got there. He was almost killed by the French the second day. He actually got wounded the second day. And uh, yeah, he was all over the place. He really was, you know. So, uh, you almost had to represent him. You had to represent him. But you didn't want him sitting there in a machine gun nest saying, okay, pop those guys, pop those guys. Yeah. That wasn't his role. He, he was yeah. on a higher level than that. He wasn't He wasn't doing, getting his hands dirty. He was trying to keep the whole operation going. And in that role, he was very successful. Yeah, I think uh, that the decision that they made to not represent him the way he had been in past scenarios as just a straight 10-3 leader was a great one because it really changes how you use him in the game. And if he had been a 10-3 leader, the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction, I, I think that it, it would have the game would have suffered for it. it would, the Death Star Syndrome, it was the thing I was looking to avoid. You know, we didn't want to have that the, the German, you know, three heavy machine guns, or you break it down to half squads and you got like a dozen things coming at you. You know, it's like, it was just, I didn't want to have him depicted like that. I wanted him to be the one behind the scenes. You know, if you get those guys moving over there, get these guys going up here. And it, it worked out well because it it was just so simple to do. You know, all he has to do is not have the ability to direct fire. And it makes him a whole different kind of character. You know, it's like, I, I think they should do Corman the same way. Mm. You know, 
they would give them another avenue to put victory points into a scenario that would make it interesting. You know, you have to rescue people that are on stretchers, litter bearers, you know, and corpsmen that can fix people up and keep them alive for a certain number of terms. You know, there's just different ways to, to represent them, but these guys should be out there. You know, the individual at this level, the individual makes a huge difference. I mean, we did a scenario about a, a lieutenant in the Belgian army that ran out and blew a bridge up. You know, he was behind a gas station when we found him. Uh -huh. <laughs> there was a monument to him, to be clear. <laughs> yeah. There was at least one, one I think, confirmed uh, instance where German soldiers were dressed as Americans and trying to get behind American lines. And I, I don't know if they actually did that, but did you have Bulge. any... Yeah. 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 Did you have any uh, ideas to slip that into the game somehow? I've yeah, we put that in as uh, the scenario, uh, the, the last scenario. It's uh, called The Almost Men. And it's about the second Panzer Division. Um, the three campaigns that they were in, the first one was 1940, and they almost got to the English Channel. And Hitler gave the order to stop. They would have been the unit that got to the English Channel. Then when they got into the war deeper, they went into the Eastern Front and they went to Moscow. And they saw the spires of the Kremlin and they were told to stop. So they, they were called the almost men because they never got where they were supposed to be. You know, they almost got there, but they never, you know, they were, they were always stopped. Mm. And this was like a very... In big insult to these guys. They, you know, because they fought hard to get to the places they got to. I mean, it was, they went through some heavy crap. If you read the history of the Second Panzer Division, there was some nasty boys, you know. I mean, and it was just, you know, they, they, they were so frustrated. When the bulge came, they were like, we're charging, you know. And they got to the, the outskirts of the notch. It's like a weird area. It's like intermittent hills and houses, you know. And they came into the town through this giant rock that's there. It stands like 150 feet tall. And it's split in half, and they have the road going through the middle of it. So they, 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 the German column comes through this thing, and it's got like two tanks in the front. And then they have the fuel trucks. One is the ammo, the other has the fuel. So they're driving in in this army police battalion is the guard at the bridge. The bridge is a pontoon bridge that's been erected next to the spot where the old bridge was. And they have like an MP platoon up in a college. And it just everything came together. It all hit in this one night. The Squazini commandos came screaming by. Um, the the tanks coming through the middle of the town, just one guy steps out with a bazooka and fires a shot, and he misses the two tanks in the front and hits the ammo truck, it's the third vehicle in the convoy, and just causes this cataclysmic detonation in the small street that starts this giant fire and then sets the fuel truck off. So they have these two massive explosions right in the middle of the convoy. And the convoy splits up, and they had all kinds of tanks. Like it was like a conglomeration of they had flame tigers and all kinds of you know 
things like that. It's like late war. You know, the Americans are not their second line. But it was uh, an interesting thing to do. But, you know, because we have just Squazini commandos sneaking in. They can enter anywhere on the other side of the river. And those were the guys that were dressed up as American MPs. And I remember we, we were going back and forth with that one, Dan, for a while, trying to figure out yeah. the rules to make that work, you know? Yeah. Because that was it's, tough. How do you represent them? They go past them. You know, how do you get past them? Do they just drive through the checkpoints or they, you know, because we had just set up the company was there. They were, it was five British, uh, what are five Allied tanks to come? along. The Shermans with the big guns, right? We had some Achilles in there, yeah, with the 76 double L's, yeah. Yeah, so it was like, you know, it's an interesting night action. One of the things with Denant, you have some weird times for the scenarios. You know, you have uh, partial sunlight, you know, and the nights, you played a couple of night scenarios. There's three or four in there, I think. Three anyway, yeah, three. Yeah. And I like this little special rule with the, the uh, if you have two machine guns and the sniper rule, they don't get to count the TEM. That's just to say, I haven't read the footnotes, but that's to say that, that they're going to target that spot, right? More often, give that yes. historical. That's oh, yeah. That could be in a lot of games, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason being, uh, snipers are drawn to what's causing their side the most damage. Uh, when they're in the pure sniper role. I mean, snipers today, especially a little bit back then, but mostly today, they also call in artillery, they call in airstrikes, they have a much expanded role from the World War II sniper. But back then, it was the sniper himself trying to take things out with his rifle, more so than not. And um, you have something just shooting out this death ray from the second floor of a building. <laughs> you know, you say, hmm, I think that needs to be stopped. And one of the reasons why, well, there's a number of reasons why people in actual World War II tactical manuals mention all the time, you don't lump all your machine guns together. For one thing, one lucky hit and there goes all your machine guns. For another, you want to cover more area, but also because it attracts a lot of unwanted attention. And part of that unwanted attention is snipers. So that doesn't really get represented in the ASL. So we were talking, you know, and that's the great thing about something like this. Like Dan and I would talk about the rules. The deer come in, we talk about the rules. Poor Nadir, he was kind of on his own hook because I, you know, I'm more autistic than artistic. And uh, Dan is not exactly renowned as an artist either. So we couldn't really help Nadir out too much, yeah. you know. But yeah, we uh, could just make him do more stuff and try to figure out how to color this color. <laughs> You try so to. Do you think you could? Uh, you know, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> poor guy. Change that ruined city hex into a grain field. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's not too hard, right? <laughs> Seven coats later, yeah. <laughs> oh, come sorry, on. we meant the field. Sorry. Yeah, these coasters. But uh, the uh, the whole idea behind that rule, though, with the snipers was it didn't represent how much attention something like that would draw from snipers. And the other part of it is a tactic that is used frequently. You have a, a nine two or a nine minus one, a good leader directing that kill stack. He's in a building, usually second level, maybe first level, highest level you can get to for sure. 
and you always have a couple of half squads wearing construction vests, waving red flags out in the street saying, shoot me, Mr. Sniper, shoot me, I'm a zero TEM. Yeah. And yeah. that's, uh, to put it mildly, an unrealistic uh, tactic. And mm -hmm. so that kind of, so, you know, how can you defeat that tactic? Because it's going to get used in this. You've got a lot of infantry. Some of it's just kind of cooling its heels, waiting to get on the other side while the boats are over there. They're just going to stand around smoking butts in the street and saying, you know, shoot me, sniper. So how can we avoid this problem? Well, I know. So unless you want to deploy a whole platoon around these, each individual strong point like that, you're going to have a zero TM, just like the guys in the streets. So it's going to be equidistant. Well, let's see. I can shoot the half squad that can't possibly harm me. Or I can shoot that monolithic death star and maybe kill the leader and break the whole thing. Hmm. Well, that was easy. You know, and that kind of defeated that. So that was that was the idea behind that was it was both realistic but also defeated a gamey tactic. Yeah, it's a wonderful way to to tackle that. Yeah, yeah. The um, uh, uh, there's burnt out woods. So the, uh, historically, I guess there was were there woods burning, and then what's interesting about that is now this rule gets missed a lot because um, and usually a clue to that is a. a pop in on a scenario and I'll see half the map on fire. Like, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> the first thing I'll ask is, by the way, uh, in the uh, SSR, you guys catch the minus two DRM for what's catching fire? Because and I actually was able to talk to oh, Eddie Van Houten, a uh, little plug for Eddie there. He actually uh, was a huge contributor to the Spanish Civil War uh, module that we just gave to MMP. And he lived in Denat. That's how I initially got to, to meet this guy. We we're pretty much done with Denat. And Perry said, hey, you want to talk to this Eddie Van Holten guy? He lives in Denat. So talked to him, well, you know, Eddie, I mean, we're kind of done with this. I don't think there's much you can help us with on this at, at this point. But well, you came one, one thing I'm curious about, <laughs> and he said, yeah, they manicure the forest there. There's no underbrush to catch fire. It's very difficult for them to have big, they don't have big forest fires over there for this reason. And um, I said, hmm, because then Dan and I discussed it, and you know, because we had had some play tests where just the whole place went on fire. Oh, geez. One by Paul Sadu, God, it looked like, you know, <laughs> well, let's fight on the part that's not burning. Oh, we have two hexes yeah. over here. Thank God we put a field in there, you know. Um, so it was kind of, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a problem that came up early. We found it early. That was, uh, we started getting. Reports of forest fires all over the world would come in. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Only you can prevent forest fires. So well, long we're, we're so used to seeing scenarios where kindling is NA. It's not allowed. You know, it's just. This, oh, is... this wasn't even deliberate. This is at the start when the battle started, Donier strike came in. And it's a little pregame bombardment, you know, then I believe it's three or four hexes of a certain spot that's pre registered. Uh, by the uh, Germans. But if you roll a boxcar somewhere in there, you'll start a fire. Or if some OBA gets a KIA, you have a chance of starting a fire. And it can still happen, but with the minus two, it kind of slows things down. Then you get to the refit phase. Well, again, no underbrush. So it's not going to keep going and going and going. It's going to be burnt out. And that also stops the spread of fire because now you go from something that's burnable and on fire and spreading to something that now can't burn. And can't spread, and also gives a more realistic battlefield because you have all these charred remnants of uh, trees, and so it controls the fires on the one hand, at least that's the plan, and uh, on the other hand, 
it keeps it from carrying over quite as much uh, scenario to scenario. Same thing with the buildings. They can become burnt out, gutted, um, that type of thing. And that is, again, the same general idea. So you just don't have these forever fires that just engulf the whole map. Because they can stay burning, though. That's the thing, too. You don't know what's going to stay burning. Oh, it could. It could. <laughs> yep, some could stay built. They could uh, go down into rubble. They could uh, become gutted and stay standing. There's a couple of different things that can happen. <laughs> and I'm a big terrain alteration guy. Well, I like a lot of pyro in me. I can't help it. The other thing we did too was uh, we made it tougher to get star shells. Yes, that yes. was that was that was big. We uh, we 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 got rid of star shells being all over the map. You know, if you had a, a scenario with thirty squads on your side, and every one of them sticking their arm out of the house trying to shoot a star shell. Yeah, it's Christmas time in May, exactly. Okay. Uh, okay. just lit up too much. So not really for historical reasons, just the fact that the way the rules worked, it was just too much. Well, both well, actually. Because it's not, the whole the whole place wasn't lit up like a Christmas tree historically. You'd have, you know, somebody set up a, a star shell. And there's been a couple of movies lately that kind of do a good job of that, even though they're World War One movies. Uh, 1917 yeah. and uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which was that was redone recently and mm -hmm. a star show will go up and you have absolute darkness and then for a little bit you'll have all this illumination and then it goes back to dark again so there's plenty of time to move through and get get where you're going without being illuminated whereas the asl mechanics the way they were they just made it too easy to get star shows mm -hmm. in our opinion so we said no you don't read accounts where the whole front is so illuminated that you can't budge you might be unlucky and get caught while you're moving in the open and you better go to ground fast, which is actually covered in the rules. Like Gregory Peck in uh, Pork Shop Hill. Yeah. yeah you yeah. turn the flashlights on. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. Uh, light security is important. But um, <laughs> that, that's the reason we did that. So it wasn't just this one massive illuminated hexes. And I'm waiting against the one hex card or I could wriggle through. It was a little easier than that. Easier than that historically. So again, it had a historical basis. And then looking at some of the terrain work here, Natter, it's uh, I love it. It's the narrow railroads uh, around MM48, and you have the tennis court. Everyone knows I'm a giant fan of the tennis court. Um, just the way, and 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 then um, the stable. Yeah, the the horse racing place. Yeah, I try to make it as accurate as I can. You know, like I said, for for the. That, that's what you want the player to experience. And, you know, all it takes is something to be wrong and somebody's going to go, oh, well, you know, the whole thing must be wrong if they got this one thing wrong. I'm tired of hearing that kind of thing. So we this guy tried as hard as we could. But uh, as you're going through playtesting and stuff, Natter, did, do you get recommendations to change things on the map? Like if a uh, line of sight isn't right or something, do you have to go in and adjust? I mean, you make it sound like you did the map and then you're all done and you hand it off. No, 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 no. There's, there's <laughs> the night before it was published. Really? Constant tweaking. Yeah. yeah, from the perspective of, you know, should there be a street here or a building there, mm -hmm. that was all pretty established um, before playtesting, right? Because right. that's what they would then playtest. But there there were tweaks. I'd, I'd have to, I'd actually have to go back and look through emails to see what those might have been toward the end. But it wasn't anything significant. Mm. But it's very amazing, though. He would send us emails. The deal would send us emails. 
And it'd be like, well, what do you guys think about building heck, you know, I don't know, P45 and the P45? So you expect to see something in the thick of the fighting, but it's so detail oriented. He was actually picking a building was a little away from it and saying, gee, did I get that right? And he'd have pictures of it. What do you think? Level one and a half, level two and a half. What do you think? And I'd just be absolutely amazed. Like, dear, where did you find this stuff? <laughs> and it was really fascinating to watch. Just, just an incredible job the man did. So that's the you fun know, of doing the research. I think he said he had a background in architecture, and yeah. you can see it because he got he got into doing this city up the from the air. It looks spectacular. You know, yeah, I mean, I'd move into a house that Nadia built. Yeah, I, I don't have any problem. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he just it, the way he did it, and he depicted it like the different roofs because the thing over there, these people they don't put their roofs up the same. Here in the United States, you're used to people like you go into a neighborhood and everybody's got the same roof. Right. These people don't have the same roof. Hmm. There's not one roof that's the same as another one over there, you know. And it's like he got that, you know. He Especially up in the the little little uh, town on the hill there. What's the name of that Saint uh, Saint Medard? Yes. In there, like the houses in there, I think he painted like two houses that were a little brown on the roof that had people like gagging air out of in the first. Is that is that a different kind of wood? <laughs> yeah. It's plus two and a half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> glad you noticed that. <laughs> so, so if you want to see an example of what they had to do is uh, in a northern reentrant, if you can look at it, I don't know whether you have, can you look at the whole map there? No, I don't have it in, in my computer. Okay. But in the north reentrant, there's a church right at the opening to it that we had to put up on uh, railroad ties. That held the earth back. They when we went over there, I saw it as we drove up the road that this thing was held up. It was a church, and now I got a picture late in the thing of the view from behind this church, and you can see how dominating the steeple was. You know, yeah. So uh, it was really like right up until I think the night before we we gave the MMP to publish it. Like it was like a week after that that the thing came out. You know, he was making changes on it right up until then. Yeah, and the deer was uh, the one he, you, you caught the weir there too, where the huh. uh, yeah that went across the river. There's this little weir, and uh, I might be mispronouncing it. It might be weir. Might That's be weir. weir. Yeah, and um, basically it's a little spot where the water runs only three feet deep. There's this narrow little channel that you can walk across. It's almost like a little channel walk. And um, Nadia caught that. I said, hmm, okay. And he was saying, well, you might want to write some rules about this because, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And we, all three of us got together. What do you think, guys? One squad across at a time. Sounds like a pretty dangerous task. And she has this movement. Yeah, it has this movement, you know. And th that's the cool thing about doing stuff like this. It's always such a nice collaborative effort. And uh, yeah. that wouldn't have ever even been on the map had Nadia not caught it. Yeah, it turns out that's actually something they do to make the uh, Rhine River or that river navigable, the, the Meuse rather, not the Rhine, uh, to keep it navigable longer in the year. They have those dams so that they hold water further upstream. Mm. Uh, and there's a series of those down the river. And that's why you have the lock on one side and the 
potentially yeah. to a waterfall. Mm. Yeah, the Germans did actually try to cross on that, but one of their early crossings was that yeah. it was bloody. And so the rules reflect that. Well, what they did was they came running out onto the, the weir carrying a pot, like a, a raft. And like 10 guys tried to jump into it doing like the Three Stooges imitation. You know, <laughs> didn't end well, you know, but they got like half of them across. And they were the guys that, you know, Rommel the next day said, you know, set the place on fire and climb the cliffs. Well, and yeah. they gave us a nice SSR anyway. It was considerate of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Call got to write some rules, man. I'll tell you. It's like, I could. Well, that's a great interview we got going, but we're going to have to do it in two parts, Jeff. Yeah, a lot of information there. So, uh, but before we go, we just want to reach out and send a special message to Chris Trout, one of our ASL aficionado friends, acquaintances uh, through the grapevine. We heard Chris is not feeling well. Yep. So our condolences and best wishes to you, our friend. And yes, and prayers. We will um, yep. keep you in our thoughts and prayers. So we we will indeed, and we'll keep rolling for you to rally well. We so will. Hope you're doing okay, Chris, and uh, we're thinking about you. And uh, and several other ASLers who are struggling as we all get a little older, Jeff. It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. So it's you true. may know, may, may notice Jeff's in the car if you're watching. On yes. <laughs> I'm no longer in. This is not a backdrop. This is my actual Jeep Wrangler. And I am bagging up my ASL counters I sold on eBay and sending them out. So until next time, everybody, we will. You are busy. Yeah. Roll low. And rally well. But not, not when, when you're, you're playing, playing us. us. That's Bye, right. everyone. Bye.